Revelation chapter 2. Verse 12, Jesus dictates to John and to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write these things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which one, no one knows except him who receives it. The background of the city of Pergamos, where this church was called to uh, be a light uh, uh, to the Lord in that location, located about 50 miles uh, north of the city of Smyrna, very, very influential city, very prominent city, very, very wealthy city. But it had to work at its wealth a little bit because it wasn't located uh, in a harbor like Ephesus and Smyrna was, which put them on these trade routes that uh, made becoming wealthy or a wealthy city uh, relatively uh, something that would, you, you could gain with relative ease. So the church of, of uh, Pergamos had to make itself famous and had to make itself wealthy from other things, and it did that. The uh, town of Pergamos, or the city of Pergamos, was a university city. It was a city that was a center for learning or for higher education. At one time, uh, the university library in Pergamos contained uh, over 200,000 volumes, which is astonishing and uh, staggering when you think about the fact that it was a, uh, 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 that occurred at a time in which every single book had to be written and uh, copied by hand. It was a center in the ancient world for pagan worship, and it had uh, temples to Athena, temple to uh, Asclepios, uh, Dionysius, uh, Zeus, in fact, the temple to Zeus that uh, was up upon this high hill in, in Pergamos was one of the uh, seven wonders of the ancient world. It was also a center for emperor worship or Caesar worship in the same way that, that Smyrna was. And uh, so uh, Pergamos, you think Smyrna, as we looked at last week, you know, nothing could top it in terms of idolatry and pagan temples, and yet uh, Pergamos did top even zealous Smyrna uh, related to these things. Because it was such a, a center for pagan worship, uh, it brought with it all that uh, pagan worship brought with it in those days, and that was uh, it filled the city with sexual immorality. All of these uh, temples, for the most part, had uh, temple priestesses, which were essentially 
um, religious prostitutes and uh, and so everyone would come and they would at- worship these false gods and, and engage in uh, sexual immorality as a part of, of that worship. So here you have the church of Pergamos. Sometimes we can think it's never been so bad in, in, in world history and so this is the hardest time to be a Christian in, in history. I think maybe it is in some parts uh, of, of the world but uh, a lot of this stuff has come and gone in, uh, through human history. Christians have been asked to, to make a stand for the Lord in, in very, very difficult circumstances all, all through time. And so this church at Pergamos, surrounded by great sexual immorality. The um, Pergamos was also a medical center uh, in the ancient world. And, and uh, much of its medical practices in those days centered upon the pagan god uh, Asclepios, the Greek god of physicians and, and healing. And so these priests that were a part of the temple of Asclepios, uh, these priests were considered doctors in those days and they treated patients uh, according to this Greek god. Now, Significantly, the emblem of Asclepios was a serpent, and uh, he was symbolized by a snake because, according to uh, Greek mythology, the, uh, that was a form that he would take on occasion, is that he would take the form of a serpent, kind of bad imagery, uh, biblically speaking. And uh, so often when you see uh, ancient statues or paintings of Asclepios, he is standing there with a staff, and there is a serpent making its way uh, up, up the staff. And that's a symbol to this day uh, of medicine. That's the symbol of the American Medical Association. I'm not saying anything bad about it in light of that, but uh, is a serpent wrapped around a pole. I remember our family doctor, we were going up in Napa, and uh, his name was Dr. Murray Sr. And what a prominent uh, general practitioner he was in that city. But I remember as a young boy going in there and looking, you know, Sometimes they put you in those rooms quite a while before the doctors come. I know they're busy, but so is everybody else. But anyway, so uh, you, you, you have a chance to read everything in there. And that was back in the days where they didn't have like ESPN magazine and Sunset magazine and fill everything, not only with magazines in the waiting room, but then in the rooms. You know, I mean, they've already admitted defeat. But uh, so all you could really do is read these diplomas. And I remember looking and there was uh, Dr. Murray's, uh, you know, his uh, certificate indicating that he was a part of the American Medical Association. And there was that staff with that serpent going up, you know, and never knew what that was about or anything until I became a Christian and started to study about the Church of Pergamos and came to find out that it was an ancient symbol of uh, Asclepios. So people came from all over the world to be treated there in Pergamos. Now, uh, the treatment was a little unorthodox uh, uh, compared to uh, any medicine, certainly Western medicine. So one of the things that they used to do is they'd take sufferers of all these different kind of uh, illnesses that they would have, and they would be allowed to sleep on the floor uh, in the darkness uh, there in the temple to Asclepios. And uh, during the night, they would release all of these harmless snakes to slither all over the floor. And uh, then the, and as they would glide and slither all over your body and the people lying on the floor and everything, a touch of one of the snakes was considered to be the touch of Asclepios. And so this release of faith related to uh, all, all of that. And, um, and so that's how that was uh, some of the treatment that they uh, did in those days. To me, that, that's a clear case of, of the cure being uh, worse than the disease. Uh, 
Any doctor came in with an Asclepios priest or something. How you doing? Great. (laughs) Never felt better. Uh, I'm going to go home and die. Uh, But I'm not telling you that I've got any problems, you know, at all. No problems here. Mm Mm-mm. So, so the Christians there in Pergamos, they were surrounded by idol worship, surrounded by the associated uh, sexual immorality, and then all, all uh, the academic pride that can sometimes uh, follow, uh, surround a university that is especially uh, finds itself wanting to go against the things of the Lord. The name uh, Pergamos is derived from two Greek words. It means pergos. One word is pergos, which means tower or elevation, and then gamos, which means married. And that's very, very interesting because Pergamos represents a time in church history when the church was elevated to a place of power in the world, but they then discovered that in order to uh, hold on to that power, it would require that they uh, marry the world in order to do so. It's interesting, when we look at Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches, we've already looked at the three ways that it applies to us uh, principally number one it is a literal letter written to a literal church in the first century but it can also be applied to every single church all uh, through uh, the church history including this church but it also can be applied to the individual Christian life because a church is made up is is what the makeup the people that come to it and so to apply the lessons uh, from from that uh, particular letter but it also it, it can uh, very interesting to see it in the light of being typical of church history from the early church uh, to today or to the rapture of the church and as we would look at it that way Ephesus represents the first century church Smyrna represents that period of church history that followed the first century uh, on into the fourth uh, century, a period of Roman persecution. Pergamus then represents uh, from the time of the Roman Emperor uh, Constantine, uh, where the church joined the state uh, during the fourth and fifth centuries. Thyatira then represents the rise of Roman Catholicism and a religion marked by idolatry, which covers church history from the sixth to the fifteenth century. Sardis then uh, covers the uh, Reformation and post-Reformation period, 16th and 17th century. Philadelphia represents the great missions movement of the 18th and 19th century uh, that followed that. And Laodicea represents the church in the last days at the time of the rapture of the church where it is, um, uh, uh, it is ecumenical to, to a, a fault and uh, materialistic and, and lukewarm. And thus per, uh, per, Pergamos, represents that time in church history when in 314 AD under the Roman Emperor Constantine it went from being uh, Christians went from being this persecuted minority uh, in the Roman Empire to uh, Christianity then becoming the religion of the state I mean you talk that's that's like owning the entire monopoly board and you've got motels on everything and uh, no, I mean that that's a staggering jump where just instantly, overnight, what happened uh, to the status of Christians in, in the Roman uh, Empire. So they went in, and the good part of all of that is that uh, in, in large part, persecution against Christians in the Roman Empire, uh, it just simply disappeared. Now the bad, the bad side to all of 
that and the problem was that the church now began to receive financial support from the state the problem with that is this is that Rome had been supporting all of these other pagan religions and when all of these priests and priestesses and teachers and people <coughs> excuse me that had been on the Roman payroll in all of these other religions realized that the money's now being dumped in Christianity they left what it was that they were about followed the money and then joined themselves to Christianity uh, but they were not pure in in loving the Lord or pure in doctrine or any of these things it was all about money support so they brought all their paganism with them they brought all of their compromise and their idolatry uh, with them then in, into uh, the, the church. And a lot of it was just very, very occult and terrible things. And it was vital for the survival of authentic biblical Christianity that the church at this time make absolutely sure that every doctrine that it was teaching, every practice that it was practicing, was a, 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 and, and every doctrine and practice that was endeavoring to enter into the church would, would meet the standard of the Word of God. There was just enormous pressure on the church at that time, and at this time, to compromise the Word of God to accommodate a larger group of people and that's why Jesus uh, emphasizes his word all the way through this letter notice he begins it by saying directing it to the angel or the pastor of the church uh, there in Pergamos he doesn't address the board there <laughs> he called a man to lead that church and uh, and he held that guy responsible and like James said in James chapter 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, he said, Be not many masters or teachers, you're going to face the harsher judgment. And he holds this guy responsible for what's happening inside uh, this church. And it's very sobering, and, it, and it's a needed, a needed sobriety. The importance of the fear of the Lord. Pray for it for us in this church. The fear of the Lord in our hearts is... His leaders. Then Jesus describes himself in verse 12, and he describes himself, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now we remember that every self-description that he gives in all seven of these letters, he, uh, they aren't just something he pulls out of the blue. They are all something from chapter 1 where he is described and he simply reminds them of some description of him from chapter 1. There's something that this particular church has either lost sight of related to Jesus and they need to be reminded of, or it's something that they're aware of, but now they need to be even more aware of concerning him. And Jesus, Jesus brings that uh, to their remembrance. And Jesus in chapter 1, uh, verse 16, he's described as, He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. So when he talks here about the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, it's talking about the Word of God. The Word of God is being likened to a sword. Now the sword that, the word that's used for sword here is the same word that's used for sword in, in chapter 1. And it's different from the word that's used uh, for sword for the Word of God in Hebrews chapter 4, which talks about the Word of God alive and powerful is it sharper than a two-edged sword etc etc that talks about a, a sword that was used for infighting close fighting the sword that he uses here was a sword that could be up to five feet long 
It was the kind of thing that, you know, some massive Roman soldier would take this sword. And when he began to swing that in battle, it was carnage. And, uh, and he, just, he, he would just bring through this sword uh, just uh, awesome destruction uh, upon his enemy as that sword would be wielded on, on the battlefield. His bodies would fly in all directions. And so the, the sword, as he speaks about it here, it symbolizes the judging power of, of the Word of God. In other words, Jesus is reminding this church and us that his word, the Bible, is to be the standard for all doctrine and all practice here. It is to be the standard for what we believe and what we do, how we think and how we live, always of putting the same thing. The Bible is to be the standard for all doctrine and practice in the Christian church and in our own uh, individual lives. And when anything rises up within our lives that does not match the standard of God's Word, it is to be dealt with ruthlessly in the same way that that sword would be wielded on the battlefield. That sword of God's Word is to be brought to bear against it until the lies of man, the traditions of man, the ideas of man, everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God lies in a heap. Defeated by, by the word of, of, of God. He declares in verse 13, I know your works. And then he commends them in, in verse uh, 13. I not only know your works, but where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. How would you like to hear that? Jesus speaks to this church and he says, I, I know where you live. I know the city you live in. I know what you're up against. And I know that you happen to live in the city, the city in the ancient world where the devil rules his demonic realm from like he rules nowhere else. When you're talking about Pergamos, we're talking about the ultimate demonic stronghold upon a city. And the Bible teaches that the demonic realm is, is much uh, like a military kind of, of thing. Satan can't be everywhere all at once. But he's got, you know, this quite a large number of, of angels that fell with him. They're called demons. He instructs them. He, he commands them. They do his bidding. And so it gives the appearance of, of, of him being all over the place. But, but it, it's merely his kind of kingdom in the spiritual realm that he is, he is orchestrating all of it from. It. And he's doing that from Pergamos at the time of, of the writing of, of this letter. That, that demonic realm. Now, I'm not a devil guy. I've, I've only got so much uh, life. Uh, this, uh, this side of heaven, and I am sure not going to spend it talking about the devil forever. I remember when I was a new uh, Christian, there was this guy that was on uh, the television at that time, and, and uh, well, it was Ernest Angley. But anyway, uh, so uh, he was on there, and, and man, have you ever seen, I mean, he just, wow, he could, 
he was kooky. I mean, he was really kooky. But he got up there, and but he was mesmerizing. You know, as a, I just, who's this? And I only saw him the one time uh, in watching his show. And he got up there, and he had this way. I mean, he had a way to keep you. And he had the worst hairpiece uh, that you could ever see. And, and you just looked at it. I'm not putting anybody down related to that. Don't feel bad about it. His, you can do better now than what he had. And, and uh, so, but he, he had this way and all. And he announced that he was beginning like a... Uh, a 24 or 30 or a 50 week series on the devil oh man I thought who could bear you know 50 weeks of the devil but so we don't exalt the devil and I'm not a, a big territorial spirit guy I'm not a territorial spirit guy at all but I understand that that's real but I understand that Jesus is greater than all of that. We just obey Him. We do what He calls us to do. And He takes care of the demonic realm. But remember in the uh, book of Daniel, I think it was in chapter 10, where this angel comes, good guy, comes uh, to Daniel, and he announces the reason that he's kind of late in getting there. And, and he said to Daniel, Daniel, on the day that you began to pray, I was dispatched to bring you an answer uh, to your prayer. But on my way to bringing you the answer, the prince of Persia, talking about the, the, the demonic prince that was over the kingdom of Persia in that time, he said he resisted me for 21 days. And it was only when Michael the angel came and could take up the battle with the prince of Persia that I could then release from that to bring you the message. Amazing. What, ha what happens in the demonic realm around us? Now, I don't know about you. Um, I love Modesto for a lot of reasons. And uh, one of the reasons is the presence and the influence of the body of Christ in this city. And all you need to do is go to another city where there is not an influence of the body of Christ. And uh, you have a sense for how to appreciate all of that. And I know we do appreciate that. But there are times where we can, because the Holy Spirit indwells us. You can go into places uh, around the world or around this country, around the Bay Area even, and you walk into certain cities or different things, and you just, it, within you, you go, whoa. Okay, this is a stronghold that I'm walking into demonically. This is a thing where He is ruling big time, because your spirit is heightened inside of you. And, uh, and, and so, then, so often, what do you look then at the city that you've entered in? Idolatry, sexual immorality with, with the worship of idolatry, very often a, uh, an educational institution that is uh, very, very hostile toward, toward God, just like Pergamos and all. So Pergamos was not an easy place to be, be a Christian. And, and, and the nice thing that Jesus is doing when he comes to them and basically he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. He's communicating to them, I know there are easier places to walk with me. I'm not, unsy I'm not unsympathetic with what, what you face every day in, in living for me in that environment. I know what you're doing. And he commends them uh, for, for all of that. And then yet in the middle of, of all of this, that demonic stronghold that it was, he said, uh, despite all of that, you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days which, in which Antipas was my faithful martyr. Despite the oppression of the environment, the wickedness of, of the environment, 
They held fast to Jesus' name. That refers to who he, who he is. And it refers to what he is. Even in that wicked environment, they did not budge from the fact that he is God the Son and the Son of God. That he is the promised Messiah. And, and these facts concerning him, they did not hide the fact that they knew him. They did not deny the fact that they were Christians. They did not deny their relationship with him. But not only that, he said they did not deny his faith. And what the reference to his faith is, what he taught. They didn't deny what Jesus taught about eternity, about salvation, about how to live life, all of these things. They were faithful to, to the Word of God and to who Jesus was in that environment. And they did so, as he talks about Antipas here, even in a life-threatening environment where you could lose your life for, for standing uh, true uh, to those uh, things. In other words, they're paying quite a price to be faithful to the Lord. Antipas did. He lost his life. He would not compromise. I will not compromise who he is and what he is. I will not compromise what he taught, though you kill me. And, uh, and what am I going to compromise for? These temples, these idols to worship what I once worshipped and no leads nowhere? To go back to a life of sexual immorality and, and uh, these kinds of things? Been there, done that. And uh, this is where I stand and this is where I live and where I die. And he was killed for his faith there in Pergamos. It's interesting when Jesus calls him his faithful martyr, the word martyr literally means witness. Antipas was a witness for the Lord. Sometimes how we use martyr in, in, in the United States in general is we speak of a martyr as someone who's given their life uh, for something or for their faith. That's not how the Bible uses it. It uses it as a witness. In other words, um, every single uh, you know, a, a witness is something that we are. We are martyrs. And, and death does not make us a martyr as Christians. It reveals that we've been a martyr all along. And that's what happened here with, with Antipas. His name means against all. Isn't that great? Though none go with me, I, I will follow. What a brother. And, and uh, if nobody else takes note of faithfulness, that Jesus does, doesn't he? His name is right there in the Scriptures. And, and so, and they did that, and faithful to the word, faithful to who Jesus was, faithful in the face of death, even as he said again, where Satan dwells. He said, I know all the pressure that you're facing. This is good, what you're doing. Then he rebukes them and uh, corrects them in verses 14 and 15. He said, I've got a few things against you. And the first thing that he had against them, verse 14, was because you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. The church of Pergamos had been infiltrated by those who held the doctrine of Balaam. Balaam was an Old Testament prophet, a kind of goofy guy. But he was a, he was a Gentile, and, but he was, he was a real uh, prophet. And, uh, and it was at a time in which the children of Israel were making their way uh, in toward the promised land uh, to, to occupy the land and, and, and to, to take that land and, as God had given it to them. And as they're going along, all of these enemies are rising up against them, trying to slaughter them and wipe them out. But God is giving them favor. They're defeating their enemies. And they're making their way to the land that God has promised to them. And, uh, and they are defeating their enemies with relative ease. It's, it's like an ox, the Bible says. They were like uh, oxen eating the grass. I mean, they just 
eating their way to the, you know, to the promised land. The problem is, is that there was a kingdom uh, known as the kingdom of Moab, and they were the next kingdom on the menu for the children of Israel making their way uh, to, to the promised land there. And Balak was the king uh, of Moab, and he sends uh, messengers to Balaam, uh, this prophet who has some kind of a connection with God. He's a pagan, uh, the Balaam, uh, Balak is, and he said, I need you to come here and curse these people that are coming, and, and, uh, uh, and they're, they're wiping everybody out that tries to attack them, and I, don't want, uh, I want to attack them and defeat them, but uh, obviously it can't be done on a purely physical level. So Balaam comes, and uh, it's a long story. I'm not going to go into the whole story. We'll get into it in 10 years when we get to the book of Numbers again. So anyway, but I'm glad you have a sense of humor. I'm very greatly relieved by that. So anyway, uh, he, he ultimately comes, and he comes, and, he, and, and Balaam is, he offers all of these sacrifices and everything that Balak brings for him, to, you know, the, he commands to have brought to him, and, and, all, and he looks out over this, you know, one to three million, you know, uh, camping trip of people known as the children of Israel out there on the plain, and he goes to try and pronounce a curse over them, and what comes out of his mouth is a blessing. Well, Balak didn't, didn't pay him good money to come over and bless these people. They're all blessed enough. I, I paid you money to, to curse them. So Balak, Balak's idea like this is, he, he looks and says, well, maybe you can't curse them all at once. So let me take you over here where you, maybe you just look at about 300,000 of them at once. Let's just curse them by degrees. So he takes them over here where he's just seeing a section of them. And, and Balaam gets up now to pronounce uh, again over the nation of Israel. Instead of a curse, it's another blessing. And, and, and you know, Balak is going out of his mind over this whole thing. He's, just, you know, I did, he's livid. I, I called you to curse these people. And, and let's try it one more time and offer the sacrifices and everything. And uh, Balaam gets up, pronounces a third curse, I mean a third blessing over them. And then and, and Balak's beside himself. And then Balaam says, listen, uh, the next one's free, the fourth one. And he stands over the nation of Israel and he pronounces one of the most beautiful blessings and promises related to God's people in all uh, of the Bible. And, and Balak goes ballistic over the whole thing on things. If you can't say something bad, don't say anything at all, you know. <laughs> so, so, and then the account drops a little bit in those chapters 24, 26, somewhere in there in, in the book of Numbers. And we get little hints later in the scripture of what happened. And what happens, Balaam had been faithful up to that point. But he comes to Balak because he's greedy. And he comes to Balak and he says, yeah, I know how to defeat these people. I know the secret and I can tell you what the secret is. You will never, ever defeat these people from without. It will never, ever happen. Because their God is too strong. And their God is too much for them. But their God is a holy God. And their God is a jealous God. And while you can never defeat them from without, the only hope of stopping them is to get them to bring defeat upon themselves. 
And because their God is a holy God and he is a jealous God, have your young Moabitess women go into the camp of Israel, go to the young men, offer themselves sexually to the young Jewish men, and then while everybody's kind of heated up in this whole thing, have them bring out their idols to worship, and, uh, and, then, uh, and then for things to be offered to these idols in the, in the course of the whole sexual uh, immorality and all of that. And when God sees that, he will be forced in his righteousness to rise up and bring a judgment against them that you can never bring against them. And Balak did exactly what Balaam told him uh, to do, and it was successful. And overnight, in a plague, 24,000 among young Jewish men, among the children of Israel, died from the resulting plague. And I think that's a very important lesson for us to remember as Christians. We can never, ever be defeated from without. It can not happen. But we have a weak spot. And that is, we can bring judgment on ourselves if we allow sexual immorality and idolatry to come into our lives or to come into the church or into the body of Christ and we will force God because of his nature his righteousness to bring uh, chastening and, and justice uh, upon us and so here's Balaam He's, he gives the appearance of, of serving God and yet he led the children of Israel into sin through compromise and then bringing great judgment upon them. And that's what the doctrine of Balaam is, is it's compromise. Convince God's people to compromise concerning the word of God and you will force God to judge them. It will set them up for judgment. And that's what the false teachers were doing in, in Pergamos. They were trying to give the appearance of, of serving God, and all the while they were trying to lead people into uh, idolatry and into sexual immorality. And, and that's what these people were teaching. That was the influence they were having within, within the body. These things are all uh, okay. And their churches, their entire denominations that teach that today. None of these things are troublesome to God. A sexual immorality of any kind and this, this kind of, of thing. And they have gone way beyond the church of Pergamos. And it was Satan's way of attempting uh, to... That's the way he attempts to destroy a church. He was trying to destroy Pergamos that way. Tries to destroy this church, any church, that way. The bottom line is, is that Balak taught, Balaam taught Balak how to draw Israel away from holiness. And, and, uh, and, that, and that's, what they, that's what he tried to do. Compromise the Word of God. The Word of God's no big deal to, to God. It's a wonderful book of suggestions and these kinds of things. Everyone ought to know it. And everybody ought to have an appreciation for it. And, and it's wonderful in, in, in its uh, poetic language and its imagery and, and all of these things. But nobody, you don't really need to take this seriously. Not today, not in this modern age. And everybody thinks they're in a modern age, whatever time in history that, that they're in. As long as you believe the right things in your head, as long as you believe the right doctrines in your head, it doesn't matter what kind of life you live. That's a doctrine of Balaam. 
It's, it, it, I'll never forget it. Counseling many, many years ago. A woman had this situation and everything and uh, going on and everything and, and, uh, and it come in, you know, to counsel. And to, so I, I just told her, this is what the Bible says that, that you need to do related to this situation and all. And, and she stopped. She was just as frustrated as could, could be. She looked at me. She said, that's the Bible. This is real life. And I mean, I, I understand. I know where she's coming from on that, but it's just divorced. It's, it's pergamous. It's the idea that as long as I know all of this, as long as I believe it to be right and true, I don't really have to obey it. And I, and, and I am spiritual on the basis of what I know and what I believe to be true rather than what I know and believe to be true and I'm also living obediently to. It's the kind of church, pergamous that believes in the truth of the Bible, holds to the truth of the Bible, all of the truth of the Bible. They believe in the deity of Christ. They believe in Him being the Messiah. They believe in the necessity of salvation and the truth that comes from the pulpit. It's strong and it's biblical and it's uncompromising. And the people absolutely believe it. They believe all of it in their heads. But in the leadership and in the congregation, there is a widening gap within a church between what we believe and the life that we live. And that happens all the time. And we're at a pretty interesting place for us as a church. I don't think we're here at all related to this. But in the early days of a church, you know, I mean, everybody's pumped up, everybody's fired up. Yeah, okay, you know, and you're just struggling to exist. And then here we are at 20 years. And then pretty soon, and I'll tell you, I'm on, I watch for it in the body. Where, where we look and, and I seek the Lord related to it. Sometimes He'll have me bring certain things out in a passage to keep us focused. But it would be highly alarming to me. To pastor a body of people where everybody just believed all that the Bible said. But within the fellowship itself, you'd look and say a greater and greater percentage every single year is less and less obedient to that Bible. That's Pergamos. And that's a church that's headed to Thyatira, which is bad news. But that's what the doctrine of Balaam brings. And that's what a Pergamos at this time was, was believing. And it's so easy for a church to be in that place, that disconnect. I am spiritual on the basis of what I know and what I believe, rather than what is true, and that is what I also obey. The problem was that the church of Pergamos was accommodating these kinds of people in, in the congregation, and uh, the Lord rebukes them for it. And uh, holiness is important to the Lord, and uh, obedience is important to the Lord. Sometimes when God puts us in environments, and it um, might be your apartment complex, or it might be where you work, or where you go to school, or where you live, or whatever it can kind of be, and uh, sometimes when He can put us in a place where the, the sin is just rampant all around us. Our resistance of that sin to, to live obedient to Him 
means that much more to him. He knows what we're in the middle of. And, and our obedience blesses his heart as, as we, we, sometimes when it costs us something to be faithful to him, as, as it was here, you know, and, and he's calling the church of Pergamos to do that. So compromise was just slowly taking over the church. Hadn't taken it over yet, but it was on its way, and Jesus knew that it was. I don't like, personally, I don't like this whole uh, de-emphasizing of holiness today in order to grow a church or to make it attractive to uh, whoever it, it, it might uh, be. Trying to, I, I, I uh, very much dislike this idea of trying to communicate to the whole world that we're really no different than the world. Uh, we just go to church. I don't like that. We are different. We are different. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are saved. We have the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is inside of us. We were what we were whenever we were that, however long ago. We are not the same person. And that, that's not, like the old saying goes, Jesus didn't come to make good people better. He came to make dead people alive. We're not just a better version of something that we were. We're a completely different thing in Him, a new creation. I think it's a mistake. I really do. To think that we reach the world by becoming it. I'll tell you what we do when we do becoming like it. I'll tell you what we do. We become a laughing stock to it. We just look like a bunch of dorks. And, and because, because they know... We should be different. They know. I remember when I, when I decided, okay, I'm going to walk with the Lord here now. I've had enough time proving that I'm a stupid idiot by my mid-20s and, uh, and, and, and all. I, I, when, I, when I came to walk with the Lord, I, I, mean, I was tired of sin. I was tired of myself. I was really tired of myself. And I was tired of the world and all these way, ways. And I, so I was heading back to church to find out if they had any answers. And I was not looking for something that was just a, something that looked pretty much like the world, but just a little Christian angel dust on it. I wanted someone to call my sin, sin. I did. I wanted somebody to call me a sinner. I knew what I was. I wanted, to, I wanted them to love me while they said it. <laughs> but I wanted them to level with me. If, if you can't get the diagnosis right, then how am I going to be, believe you for the cure? Tell me what I am. Tell me what I've got. Then, then, I, then I have some confidence in, in, in what it is that you're going to tell me treats this thing that I am. And, and, and I wanted holiness and I wanted purity and I wanted to be told that that was possible. And I did not want to be told that you can go to the pagan temple and you can do all the things that everybody else is doing in town. You can live like everybody else and still be a good Christian and, and, and all of that. I didn't want that. I wanted to hear that this other life that was, was possible. We reached the world by living a different kind of life and then trusting the Holy Spirit to do in others what He did to us. That He will give them a hunger to know the truth and He will lead them into contact with the truth and that when they hear that truth, they will give their life to Him. 
Look at this. What time is it here? It's, it's uh, uh, about seven minutes after seven. On a Sunday night, you're in church. Now, why are you in church? Because it's the most exciting place in the whole world, you know. The budget that they have here for keeping us in music. No, you, you, you're here. It's not because we're the most fabulous or most amazing thing in the world or because you don't have options in the world to be doing other things tonight. We, we do it because the Holy Spirit has given us a desire to be here and to grow. That's why we're here. And what He's done in us, He will do in others. And we need to, be, we need to believe that and, and trust God to do that and be faithful to be what others were for us so that others can have a hope that... You can really live a different kind of life. That Jesus really does make people in, into, into new creations. And it's wonderful. To, the call to holiness, it's a privilege. The second thing in verse 15 that he had against them was that there were those that were within their church that, that held the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And Jesus says for a second time in these letters that he hates that. Now, now nobody knows definitively what the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was. But I'm convinced that Jesus wanted us to understand it, uh, what it is, so we can avoid it. And, and the word Nicolaitan is made up of two Greek words. And Nikeo means to conquer, and Laos means the people. We get our word laity from it. And I'm inclined to think that what he's talking about is the establishing of a clergy over laity uh, religious system. Where, where there's just one group of people in the body of Christ that conquer or they rule over the rest of the body of, of Christ. And, 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 and if that's what it is, Jesus says that he hates that. We're all servants. We have different callings. We have different giftings and all. But we're, we're all uh, equal in the body of Christ. Nobody's, nobody's better than anybody else. We've got one that's the great one that we turn our attention to. You see that in Roman Catholicism. If you're in Roman Catholic Church, uh, you know, tonight in this place, just look at what you're, you're in the middle of. You're in the middle of a religious system that has a clergy over the laity, where the church has introduced itself into a place in your life that belongs only to Jesus. It's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. But the Protestants, not innocent related to this, the shepherding doctrine, you know, you can't buy a refrigerator without talking to your pastor or marrying, you know, without his approval or the goofy things. Who, would, who in their right mind would want to tell another person who to marry? I, I, I wouldn't want to tell anybody what refrigerator to buy. Break in eight months and now I've got to deal with that thing you told me to buy the Amana. A Maytag would be going for another 20 years, you know. So, so just no business being in that place. We, just, we, we point everybody uh, to the Lord. And we're not to, to, to uh, in any way accommodate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And then he calls on them, notice verse 16, to repent of, of what it is that they're in, in the middle of. To recognize that what they got going on in that church, that it's wrong... And then they need to have, and what repentance is, is a change of mind that results in a change of action. And they look at it and say, it's not enough to look at this and say, wow, this is wrong. We're on the wrong track. He said, you need to recognize that, but now change everything about these two doctrines that are now fully entrenched within, within the church. Stop 
the influence of these people in the church. I'll split the church. I'm going to answer to the Lord. That's, that's what this leader of this church has to, to, to bear in, in mind. If they fail to take care of the situation, notice what Jesus says in verse 16. He promises he'll just go ahead and judge it himself. When he talks about uh, coming to them there and uh, with the sword and he'll fight with them uh, with the sword of his mouth he's not he's notice he says you repent or else i will come to you quickly talking about the church and we'll fight against them talking about those that hold the false doctrine with with the sword of my mouth he says i'll come in and and i'll take care of it uh, with the sword of my mouth if you force me to judge it in that way then then i'll do that and the lord knows how to protect his church and and he will then he exhorts him, notice in verse uh, 17, uh, for he who has an ear, uh, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so, though they're surrounded by paganism, though they're surrounded by idolatry and, and, and sexual immorality and academic pride and, and, and all the intimidation that comes from all of this, they were to stick with God's Word. He says, if you have an ear to hear that, that's, that's what you need to hear. From, from the Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you, I'm trying to listen loud and clear to the Lord in this. And then he gives two promises to the overcomer. He says, to him who overcomes, I'll give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. And so the overcomer in Pergamos was a person that just uncompromising concerning the word. It was the standard for their doctrine, their practice. That's the overcomer. And he says, now, I know you pay a price to do that, so I'm going to tell you about what, what I, how I bless uh, overcomers. He said to the overcomer, he would give uh, some to eat, of, uh, uh, some of the hidden manna to eat. The hidden manna referred to a pot of manna that was kept from the times of, of the children wandering in the wilderness, and it was put in the Ark, Ark of the Covenant. And, and the man in the Old Testament was God's way of, of supplying the physical needs of the children of Israel during their pilgrimage. Jesus in John chapter 6, he comes along and he declares himself to be the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst, he said. And, he, and basically he was declaring himself to be the manna. What the manna was in the Old Testament to you physically... I am to you spiritually. And, and so they would partake of the manna. What would happen? As they partake of the manna, it would be assimilated into their body. It would become a part of them. And because Jesus has been in, invited into our hearts, that's how we became Christians. Because uh, Jesus is inside of us, He is the really hidden manna inside of us. And as we stay faithful to Him, we will experience the relationship with Him that only the obedient do. And yes, it's hard and, and all, but those who do access an intimacy with God that makes it worth it. Jesus is talking about the blessing of relationship with Him that comes with, with obedience to His Word. He talked about this in John 14, 21 where he said, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. The love, the depth of relationship that occurs between a human being and Jesus through just simple obedience. When he talks about 
the white stone. White stone meant a lot of things in those days, but one of the things that it meant was, let's say you were on trial and uh, in a courtroom and uh, in the hearing, they would then take the bag and they would pass it through the jury or whoever was judging the case. And if they felt you were guilty, they'd put a black stone. If they felt that you were uh, wanted to acquit you, they would put a white stone in. And then as it would be passed, they would count the stones and you would be condemned or, or acquitted of the charge on the basis of the stone. And what Jesus is, is, is saying here is if you repent of all of these things, stay away from uh, all of, all of uh, this stuff, then you make yourself innocent of the charges against this church and you'll be given a white stone. You'll be acquitted of all wrongdoing in the eyes of the Lord related to these things that are happening there within the church. And then he said the person who receives that white stone from Jesus will discover a new name that's written upon it that only those who receive the white stone know. And I'm inclined to believe that that is the name of God that is found on, on that uh, stone, the name of the Lord. In other words, the person who chooses to remain faithful to God over a life of compromise receives a revelation about God and his nature and all the deep things of of him we learn something about God and his nature in, in a way that the compromising do not so the promises are number one two R's try to make things uh, easy for us is for toward for relationship and revelation come to the obedient Christian again John 14 verse 21 in its fullness he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. Relationship. But then he closes it with, and manifest myself to him. Revelation. The same promises that Jesus gives to this church here at Pergamos, if they would listen to what he's saying and do what he calls them to do. So the church of Pergamos, we saw the church of, of Ephesus, the importance of first love to Jesus. The, the, the church uh, of Smyrna, the importance of, uh, of a commitment to the Lord and obedience to Him, even if it, if it uh, costs us uh, our life. The importance of faithfulness to Him, even if it means prison or, or death. And, and then here from, from Pergamos this week, how important uncompromising obedience is uh, to the Word of God is to the Lord. And that, I just want that to search us when we enjoy communion here tonight in a good way. In a good way. You don't need, nobody needs me to wail on them. <laughs> but it's so easy to move away from the Word of God in practice. Oh, I believe every bit of it. I'll defend it in an argument on the bus or at work or anywhere or what, but I don't live it anymore. And it is not the standard for what I think, and it is not the standard for how I live anymore. I don't run my marriage this way anymore. I'm not talking about myself, but what can happen where we sit and realize tonight how I define, how I handle my wife, how I handle my husband, how we raise our children and all. The Word of God isn't even remotely the standard for how this household's being run. The wisdom of man, my own ideas, all of these things. 
We look at it and say, well, I'm compromising then. And yet I can still think I'm a spiritual person. And to come and say, whoa, wait a second. I want to know all of this. I want to believe all of this, but I want to practice it too. So anywhere that's kind of crept into our lives tonight, a chance just to say, Lord, I want you to search that in our life. I want to know, but I want to live it too. And I've moved from it. And, and when we partake of communion tonight, the bread is a symbol of Jesus' body, and the cup is a symbol of, of His blood. And as we hold the bread, as it's passed out in, in just a couple of minutes, just hold that bread, and as, as we just hold that bread, just a fresh consecration, just to allow this letter to search us. And just say, Lord, I, I, want, I want Your Word to be the standard for what I believe and the life that I live. I just freshly commit to that tonight. And that's what communion is. It's a, it's a retrospect. It's looking back to what Jesus has done for us. But it's also an introspect, a time to make sure we're on course with what He's called us to. And then it's a prospect looking forward to His coming. So as we partake of the bread tonight, let's just let the importance of this letter rework whatever needs to be worked in our hearts and our minds uh, tonight. We want to learn everything that we can learn from him. If the men come forward and the worship leaders uh, come forward,